Hello, my name is Jonathan. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and a member at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Some of y'all may be familiar with this story, uh, especially if you have a Netflix account and you've watched the documentary, The Long Shot. Uh, but on, uh, in 2003, a 16-year-old girl, Martha Pueblo, was a witness against a man named Mario Catalan at a court hearing. He was on trial for murder, and Martha, a 16-year-old girl, was a witness against him. So Juan Catalan, which was Mario's brother, he was at the trial just supporting his brother, and he saw the 16-year-old girl testify against her, his brother. So he was there just to support his brother. Three months later, Juan is on the way to work, and he shows up at work really early in the morning, and 10 policemen jump out of police cars and at gunpoint arrest him for the murder of Martha Pueblo. The witness that saw the murder uh, gave a description and said that it was a Latino man with facial hair, and she drew a sketch. And they said, this fits Juan Catalan, and so they arrested him. He was on um, death row for six months. Two detectives and a prosecutor needed to close the case. Juan fit the description, and so they framed him for murder. They came out later and said that we were literally trying to frame him for murder. On May the 12th, 2003, which was when the murder took place, Juan said that he was at a Dodgers, L.A. Dodgers, Atlanta Braves baseball game with his daughter. He had bought tickets that day for his mom for Mother's Day, and he said he admitted he was actually hoping that she would not go so that he could go, and uh, that's what he did. He took his daughter. This is what he said he did. This was his alibi, and that was his story. But there was no way to prove that he was at the game. So his attorney contacted Dodger Stadium, and they got the Dodger cam footage, which is the footage that they shoot uh, during uh, commercials and they could put on the Jumbotron at the game, where sometimes they would scan the crowd. And uh, they went through all this footage trying to see if they could catch Juan on film so that they could prove that he was at the game at the time of the murder. And so they thought what they saw, and I think... We got some pictures. Go through. Melissa, do you have some pictures up there? Maybe you do. So, yes. So, here it is. This is the footage that they had uh, that HBO, I'm going to take this jacket off. See, it's hitting my microphone. And they said, we think this is him, but we can't get close enough to be able to tell for sure. So, uh, Juan had remembered that he thinks there was a TV show uh, filming at the game, just happened to be filming at the game in his section, and it ended up being Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Many of you may be familiar with that uh, show. In fact, you can hit the next slide. There's Larry David at the game filming one of the episodes. And so Juan's attorney contacted HBO and said, could you please provide all the tapes you had of that game? And so they went through eight tapes. Well, actually, they were going to go through eight tapes, but the, by the time they hit the fifth tape, they saw it, and this is what they saw. So they say Juan and his daughter, and there's actually another shot where you can catch his profile at the game. 
And so he was at the game on the night of the murder. It wasn't quite at the exact same time, so they had to use contact to cell tower. They found out that he was talking on the phone to his wife later on after that game, and that cleared him, and so that now he was taken off a of death row, and he was proven innocent. So Juan Catalan was framed, arrested, convicted of a crime he didn't commit, and he spent six months on death row. But he was actually declared innocent, and his life was spared. So that's Juan's story. I got one more story. A story of another innocent man who was framed by his friend, his community, his religious leaders, in two different government jurisdictions. But unlike Juan Catalan, within a few days, he was executed. Do you know who I'm talking about? That is the right Sunday school church answer. That's right. That man is Jesus. So before, just a little background on Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came to earth, there were 39 books and at least 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to a coming Messiah who would deliver God's people both from spiritual and physical oppression. Each Old Testament book and each Old Testament prophecy would point to Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and he was raised in Nazareth. He did carpentry work with his adopted dad until he was 30, and then he went into full-time ministry. The first thing he did was recruit 12 disciples who spent three years watching him heal the sick, confront corrupt leadership, and teach people how to know God. In the last week of his life, he was betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. And here's how it happened. Here's how Jesus Christ of Nazareth was framed. One of Jesus' disciples, a man named Judas, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the religious establishment. Because the religious leaders had no authority to execute anyone, they turned Jesus over to the governor, a guy named Pontius Pilate, who deflected to King Herod, who sent Jesus back to Pilate, who then presented, pressured by the Jews, turned Jesus over to Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus along with two thieves. Yet at each step of the way, this is incredibly fascinating to me. It's just something that hit me over the last few weeks as I was studying this. Each step of the way, people kept declaring that Jesus was not guilty. Most people receive capital punishment because they are guilty. Sometimes people receive capital punishment even though they are innocent. But Jesus was the only man that received capital punishment because he was innocent. So our biblical truth this morning is that Jesus was crucified because Jesus was innocent. And in light of this biblical truth, Jesus was crucified because Jesus was innocent. I have three questions that I want to ask and answer this morning. The first is, who was Jesus? The second is, who killed Jesus? And the third is, well, then who gets to be with Jesus? So first, who was Jesus? Specifically, I want to look at who was Jesus according to seven people who saw him on the way to the cross? Who was Jesus according to seven people who saw him on the way to the cross? The first person I want to look at is Judas. So in Matthew 27, 3, so Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He was the guy, Jesus' friend, who betrayed him, who framed him so that he would eventually go to the cross. In Matthew 27, 3, then when Jesus, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, 
I have sinned by portraying innocent blood. So this is a guy that says, Jesus, I'm going to betray him and pretend like he's worthy of death. But then after he's turned over to the Roman soldiers, he comes back and says, this man is innocent and I've betrayed innocent blood. So that's the first one in Jesus' path to the cross that said he is innocent. The second is a group of people, actually, and it's the religious elite. These are the guys that were angry at Jesus all during his ministry, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, the Sadducees, and they were constantly trying to look for something wrong in Jesus' life that they could use to bring him up for capital punishment, and they never found anything, so they had to get people to lie on their behalf. In Mark 14, 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus, but it put him to death, but they found none. So here's another group of people, the second group that says, He's innocent. Then you get to Governor Pilate, the one they actually bring him to. And three different times in Luke and three different times in John, this phrase comes up that he says three different times, six different instances in the Bible, I found no guilt in this man. But he was pressured to send him to the cross. Not only that, but Pilate had a wife, and his wife said that she was burdened in a dream. She says, I have nothing. She told Pilate. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. So she was the fourth person on the way to the cross saying that he is innocent. King Herod, the one that Pilate deflected to and sent him to King Herod, he came back and Pilate said about Herod's, Herod's judgment that neither did Herod, Herod find this man guilty. He says that in Luke 23. And then you actually get to the cross. This is where we have the title of the sermon, Luke 23, 41 that Jesus is crucified with two different thieves, one on his left and one on the right. They start off both cursing Jesus, but later on, and we're going to talk about this toward the end, is that one of the thieves comes to a revelation, and this is what he says. He says to the other thief, We indeed justly deserve what we're getting, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So on the cross, declaring Jesus' innocence. Then you get to a Roman soldier after Jesus is crucified in Luke 23, 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, this, certainly this man was innocent. Jesus was crucified because he was innocent. The man who betrayed him said he was innocent. The religious leaders who set the whole thing up couldn't find anything or anyone to speak against them. Herod did not find Jesus guilty of anything deserving death. The governor who ordered him to be crucified said three times that Jesus was not guilty. The thief who died beside him said that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And a Roman soldier said that Jesus was innocent. Yet, Jesus was still executed. So why is it important? Why is it important to see that seven times on the way to the cross, seven people are declaring that Jesus is innocent? I've got two reasons. The first is, because none of these people, at least at the moment when they were saying this, were followers of Jesus. It can't be said that this is just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John blowing sunshine about how great Jesus is. This is raw testimony from multiple sources of multiple people who had no motive other than just to say what they observed. And then the second reason is the entire premise for Jesus going to the cross was because he was innocent. Jesus not only did not do anything worthy of death, he never did anything wrong, and he always did everything right. So Jesus was crucified because he was innocent. 
So who was Jesus according to those seven people? He was innocent. Second question I want to answer is, well, who killed Jesus? Was it Judas? Was it the religious establishment? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? Was it Rome or was it Israel? We've got to bounce forward to Acts chapter 4 because I think in a prayer that the apostles are praying, that the followers of Jesus are praying to the Father in Acts chapter 4, gives us an indication of actually who was responsible for Jesus' death. So in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28, they pray, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, talking to the Father, God the Father, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. So when you look at this passage and try to answer the question, who killed Jesus, who put him on the cross, I think you can come up with five different answers here. First of all, yes, it was Herod. Second of all, it was Pilate. Third of all, it was the Gentiles. And yes, it was the peoples of Israel. But ultimately, they did what God's hand had predestined to take place. So in your bulletin, that fifth blank is God. God is the one who killed Jesus. And that's almost like even a little, it's weird to say that God actually killed Jesus, but he did. Jesus had done nothing wrong and everything right, and God the Father put his son for execution on the cross. Because that's the whole point. All of sin, Romans 3.23 says, and Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross because you and I have done everything wrong and nothing right. Isaiah 64.6 says that even our most righteous works are like filthy rags to God. So Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter 26, he tries to avoid receiving God's wrath on our behalf because he asked the Father, if there's a plan B, I want to take it. It says in verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But because, and this is one of the greatest apologetical uh, arguments for there are no other ways to heaven that it's only through Jesus because if there was another way to get to heaven Jesus was at the front of line front of the line to take that other way but because there was no other way even after he made this request to the father please remove this cup of your wrath from me he ended up going to the cross and then you see him in Matthew 27 46 where he's on the cross and he says my God my God why have you forsaken me? Because he's enduring the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was crucified because he was innocent. He died to reverse the curse. Two passages. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, I quote this verse about every other sermon I preach because it's my favorite. But he who, for our sake, he made him... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus went to the cross because he was innocent to take on God's wrath because we are not innocent, because we are guilty. So Rick Gamache, he's a pastor of Sovereign Grace Ministries in Minnesota. He tries to describe in an article what it was like to have the cup of God's wrath poured out on Jesus. And here's some of what he says. He tries to describe what it was like for Jesus to receive 
God's wrath on the cross. And this is what he writes. A foul odor crawls inside of him. He looks up to his father. His father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize those eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The Father speaks. Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? Then Rick goes on to list sin, every sin that you can imagine that God is now at this moment with Jesus on the cross accusing Jesus of committing. The list of your sins go on and on, the Father says, and I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation, for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white-hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup, omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The Father can no longer look back at his beloved son, his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's silence, and then there's separation. R.C. Sproul, a, a pastor who's now with the Lord, he wrote this, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. great news is that three days later Jesus would rise from the dead and 11 of his disciples would willingly die for their eyewitness testimonies that they saw the risen Jesus when you think about extraordinary events that happened in our lifetime we think about the birth of Jesus I believe that this was the most central event in the history of the world so much so that the calendar that basically the entire world now uses was reset according to when Jesus was born. Jesus' death and resurrection that weekend, I believe, was the most significant event in the history of the world. Not only because through Jesus' death and resurrection, it would lead the world to be able to be reconciled to the God the Father, but it would also lead to the church, which would be the greatest force of good in the world. And so, just kind of make this plug, over the next three weeks, that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at the birth and the mission and the impact of the church. So make sure you grab a devotional because it starts tomorrow on your way out. But just as important as those uh, were, the birth of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ as being the most central and the most significant, the 33 years that was between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ were just as important. 
That's when Jesus was living a perfect, sinless life, earning your righteousness and my righteousness so we don't have to. Jesus, who was innocent, died so that we who are guilty can live. So this brings us to my third question, and that is, who gets to be with Jesus? Who gets to be with Jesus? So Luke 23, uh, and we're going to look at verses 39 and 43. They're about to be up on the screen, but I want to give you a little backstory with these two thieves that were on the cross. So in verses 32 and 33, we see this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they had came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And then in verse 39, I think, maybe we don't have it on the screen, so I'll read it for you. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive in the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So as we look at this passage and as we land the plane here, I want to answer the question. When we look at that Jesus was innocent and he died in our place because we are not, and we see this testimony from these seven eyewitnesses as he goes to the cross, and we see that the reason Jesus went to the cross, and we can even see this because it was the Father who put him there, was because not because he was guilty and not because he was innocent and just found to be guilty, but because he was innocent, God put him on the cross. We need to look at this thief who repented, and Jesus made this promise that he would be with him in paradise and asked the question, who will get to be with Jesus? So according to Matthew 27, 44, we know two things about these two criminals. And this is what verse 44 of 27 says, Matthew. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled at him in the same way. And so we can tell that these criminals were actually robbers. They were thieves. And we can also see that at one point in the story early on, really probably just a few minutes, maybe an hour before this thief asked Jesus if he could be with him in paradise, that he was along with the other criminal cursing Jesus. So how does this thief change his mind so quickly about who Jesus is. And I believe there's possibly two things. First, there's something about being on death row that makes you think about eternity because that's all you have left. I think that's part of it. And then the other thing is that I think just a few verses earlier, the thief heard Jesus say this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So this robber knew he only had a few minutes to live, he was being crucified just like Jesus was. He confessed that he was a sinner. He believed that Jesus was innocent. He said that he was king, which is saying that he was Lord, and that Jesus had the ability to forgive sin. And then he asked Jesus if he would go with him. And Jesus said yes. So, a couple of things for us. If you have ever said, God can't forgive me because of what I have done, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever said that in your life? Are you saying that today? 
hey, I'm here to learn more about God, but I just really feel like you don't know all the stuff I've done in my life. I don't know if God actually has the ability, the capacity, or even the care to want to forgive me. So if you've ever said that, or if you said, I've waited too long, I've lived too much life of walking apart from God, and why would God want to save me in the last minute? This thief, if you said either one of those two things, this thief tells us that no matter how bad you have strayed and how and as long as you can, that if you breathe today, you can still receive today Jesus Christ. Throughout the entire Bible and every person's interaction with Jesus, this is the only case that I know of, of where Jesus specifically tells an individual guaranteed that they will be with them in heaven. I mean, think about all the interactions over the gospel that Jesus has had with people. I think this is the only time where he says, and I'll give you a guarantee right now personally that you're going to be with me in heaven. So we would do really well to think about whether or not we're saved. And we'll do really well to think about how I can be saved and receive the forgiveness of my sins by looking at what this thief confessed and what he asked. So if you're a Christian and you want to know what you need to do to be with Jesus in paradise when you die, you need to look no further than this thief if you're not a Christian. And if you are a Christian and sometimes you lack assurance and just wish that Jesus would give you a personal guarantee, here's your personal guarantee. You can put yourself and the thief on the cross. And if you are a Christian, if you don't keep preaching the gospel to yourself every single day, you will revert back to thinking there must be something I must do. There must be something I must add to my faith in Christ. But this thief, for both the non-Christian seeking forgiveness and for the Christian maybe seeking assurance, the overwhelmingly clear message is that you don't need to do anything to earn forgiveness. The obviously clear message here is that you don't have to do anything to earn forgiveness because the man who got a personal guarantee didn't have the chance to do anything. The gospel in its purest form is found literally right here on the middle cross, and it's received in its purest form on the other cross. So I've got a confession to make. I'm turning 50 next month. Yeah, welcome. I know that there are plenty of people in here older than me. I get that. So you're like, ah, you're still young. I wish I was 50. I get that. But there are plenty of people in here that are younger than me. And going from 39 to 40 was not a big deal, but going from 49 to 50 just seems like a big deal. Feels old. But the truth is, it is. Thanks, Jamie. You're my golf partner this Friday. All right, so... I'm going to play from the senior tees. Uh, but the truth is that age is relative according to the age that we're going to die, right? And most of us don't know where we're going to die. Regardless of your age, you could be a very old person this morning and not even realize it. I don't know how old the thief was on the cross, but he was really probably older than most of us in here now because he was going to die within an hour. Age is really just relative. And the reality is that we're all on death row. Because if Jesus tarries another 100 years to return, that's where we're all headed. We're headed to die. So I don't know what it would look like. I don't know what it would look like, but let's say that you died today. Okay, so let's get discouraged for a minute. 
We're going to get real happy in a second. But. So let's say that you die today, all right? You're standing before an angel. I don't know what it's going to look like when you get to heaven, but let's say there's an angel keeping guard. And you're standing before an angel, and he asks you the question, why should I let you into heaven? How would you respond? So think about that for a second before I give some answers. How would you respond if you're standing before an angel in heaven and it's him before you and being able to get in and he has this question that you need to answer right and he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? If your answer begins with the word I, there's a good chance you have given the wrong answer. Think about that answer you were just thinking about giving. If it begins with the word I, there's a chance you gave the wrong answer. For instance, I was raised in a Christian home. It's not the right answer. I've gone to church all my life. Not the right answer. I've been a good person. Not the right answer. The thief couldn't have said any of these, right? I've been better than most. Not the right answer. That thief couldn't have said that. He was worse than most. He was on the cross. I walked an aisle, got baptized, became a member of the church. Y'all think that's the right answer? Nope. I've done these great things and have not done these bad things. All wrong answers. The only correct answer starts out like this. Because Jesus. The only proper answer is because Jesus did nothing wrong. Because Jesus did everything right. Because Jesus lived in my place, and then he died in my place. That's the right answer. That's what gets you into heaven. Alistair Begg, many of y'all know him. He's a pastor in Scotland. He tells, um, he comments on this thief on the cross, and I want to read you what he says. Uh, it's really good stuff. He says this, and he says it in a Scottish accent, so you got to get through my George accent to get so when he says it, it sounds a whole lot more smarter than I do. But he says, think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? And that's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? And the thief would say, well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, excuse me, the angel says, let me get my supervisor. Goes and gets the supervisor, angel. Comes back and he says, so we've just got a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. Well, what about, let's go to the doctrine of Scripture. The guy's just staring at him. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on what basis are you here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. It's not what you do. It's what the man who did nothing wrong and everything right did on your behalf. So the question is, who gets to be with Jesus? I have two takeaways. The first is, stop trying. You can't be good enough. If you're not a Christian and you're thinking about how can I get right with God, it's not up to you. It's up to what Jesus already did in your place. If you are a Christian and you have come, 
the saving knowledge of Christ through faith. Don't live every single day thinking you got to add something to what Jesus has already done. The thief didn't have a chance to do it. And so you're just living outside of what the gospel is if you're trying to do it. So stop trying. You can't be good enough. And the second one is start trusting. Simply do what the thief did. And these are the three things he did. I thought about this. I was like, can a person today that's not necessarily going to die in the next hour really get this personal guarantee from Jesus that you will be with me in paradise just by modeling what this thief did? And the answer is, and it's yes, the three things he did, and I've got A, B, C. The first thing he did was he admitted that he was a sinner. We deserve what we're getting. The second thing is, he did was he believed that Jesus had done nothing wrong and that his righteousness was now going to be accredited to his account. Whether he fully understand that doctrine or not, that's what he was saying. And the third is that he committed to follow Jesus wherever he goes. You say, well, now hold on now. How can he make a commitment to follow Jesus wherever he goes? What did he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wherever you're going, that's where I want to be. That's what the thief said on the cross. It wasn't anything he did. It was just a statement of faith saying, I want to be where you are. So who gets to be with Jesus? Those who admit that they're a sinner. Those who believe that Jesus had done nothing wrong and everything right. And then they commit by faith to follow him wherever he goes. And I got one more letter D that I actually thought about after I printed the bulletin. And so I got a D. And the D is... Don't put it off. If you have a breath, don't put off this, this decision because like it or not, we're all on death row. We're about to hear from Stevie Wentz in just a few minutes. Uh, he's getting baptized this morning. And uh, you're going to hear in his testimony that he's about to share that he put off accepting Christ for years. He literally stared death in the face. And you're going to hear about that briefly. And in his words, he got a second chance. And just last month, he gave his life to Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, take advantage of the second chance you have today to admit, believe, and commit. And if you are a Christian, remind yourself every day this week that your only hope is not in what you do, but your only hope is simply in that the man on the middle cross said you could come. Let me pray. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.